0: Coming up on this week's episode of TechSnap, we'll reflect on the lessons learned from the Sony hack and discuss some of the tools that were used to own the Sony network, plus an overview of what makes up a file system and a rundown of the Bacula backup system, plus a great batch of your questions and much, much more on this week's episode of TechSnap. Hi everyone and welcome to TechSnap. This is episode 196 of Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly Systems Network and Administration Podcast. We stream this episode live on January 8th, 2015. This episode is brought to you by our three fine sponsors, DigitalOcean, Ting, and IX Systems. I'll tell you more about those great sponsors as this year's show goes on. Our live stream, while that's powered by the incredible Scale Engine over at ScaleEngine.com. You gotta go check that out. My name is Chris, and joining us every single week is our host, the admin, the tech, and the teacher, Mr. Alan Jude. Hey there, Alan. Hey,
1: Chris. Everybody, thanks for watching.
0: Hello, Alan. I missed you. It felt like I haven't yeah. seen you for three weeks. It's. Uh, I know it
1: was weird to do <laughs> three BST nows in a row yeah. without doing a text yeah. in between.
0: I was like, am I gonna remember how to do this show? But it, uh, you know, it turns out when you've done as many as we have, it's it's like riding a bike. I think that's the same, or something like
1: yeah, that. Yeah. Uh, as part of it was uh, also. We tried to do a double episode of BSD now, but Chris was too sick. Mm. Other Chris, uh, mm-hmm. Chris Moore, mm-hmm. and so we ended up doing it uh, separately on like the Monday or something, mm. or the Friday, mm. like, a couple days later. Anyway, and so yeah, I've done a quite a few BSD or yeah, quite a few BSD nows without a tech snap, and it was always, you know, when I was unhooking everything, I was like, oh, well, I need to rearrange stuff for tech. Oh no, we don't. Never mind. <laughs> so is it a winter wonderland up there now? What's going on up there? Yeah, uh, yeah, we're having a bit of an arctic spell at the moment. Yeah, I just basically am in fog all the time. But other than that, that's all I got. It was uh minus twenty-seven Celsius with the wind chill last night. Ooh. Ooh. Current uh ah, currently it's minus twenty-three with the wind chill. But in Fahrenheit that's only minus nine. Do you have to go in them very much? Uh not really. That's good. That's good. You know, went shopping, had to get food.
0: Well, there was one story that continued to get crazier and develop even more so during our break, and surprise, surprise, it's the Sony Pictures attack. Uh, yeah. A lot of name calling, a lot of blaming, and Bruce Schneier is waiting. Is that where we're gonna? Is that where we start today? Oh um, uh, yeah.
1: Although uh, the particular story of his that I picked, uh, mostly because I'm working backwards through all my uh, articles Q. that I bookmarked over since yeah. <laughs> uh, we were recording the double episode. Yeah. Even during the double episode, there was a couple things that I kind of pushed, and I was, I'll get to them later. And uh, even going through this, even with you know skipping stuff, I'm still actually ten days behind current on what we're covering on TechSnap.
0: Wow, okay. But, it's a slog, uh, We but we'll get it.
1: Yeah, and maybe I should have done the top stories in the opposite order. But we're going to start with uh, Schneier's blog, uh, Lessons from the Sony Hack. Okay. So this isn't about the naming and the blaming and stuff. That's a little bit more the second gotcha. story. Uh, but this is, you know, what all of us can learn from what happened to Sony. Uh, so Bruce Schneier, who's a noted security researcher and written many books on the subject, um, a couple of his are really nice uh, to read, like, I forget the name of the one I read recently, or two or three years ago now. Um, but it, it's talking about uh, security and how it works and everything. But it's not in, and you don't need any knowledge about computers at all. Like most of the examples are how uh, you know, the analogy of like your house or an airport or uh, just in the concepts of security, not the implementation. So you don't have to know anything about computers to actually start to understand the security implications of this stuff. Lovely. And uh, so he does a really good job of explaining stuff because of that. You know, it doesn't require any knowledge about computers to even uh, understand his stuff. Um, So he's discussed uh, quite a few of the different things and the factors and and so on that went on with the Sony attack. So, uh, you know, the main point of his thing is that an attack like this can happen to anyone, but that doesn't mean that Sony didn't make it especially easy in their case. Hmm. Uh, You know, there were, well, you know, He's not going to say he's going to blame Sony. There's not necessarily anything they could have done to stop it, but there's many things they could have done to uh, stop it sooner and to mitigate it when it did happen and all that kind of stuff. Uh, So he talks a bit about that. And he says, uh, one of the first things to think about when you're looking at an attack is, was this an opportunistic attack or a target attack? Right? It's kind of like, you know, a mugging is usually opportunistic, right? Someone happens to see you walking down the street or whatever. Or, you know, uh, if someone steals your laptop because you left it uh, on the table at the coffee shop, that's opportunistic, right? They didn't set out to steal your laptop. They just saw it sitting there and hmm. decided to steal it
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, kind of thing versus targeted attack, which is someone who's hunting da- you down specifically, right? And he says, uh, you can characterize attacks along two axes, uh, skill and focus. Uh, Most attacks are low skill and low focus, right? People using common hacking tools against thousands of networks worldwide, right? So they're just, those are the things you see, you know, the bots trying to log into your WordPress with uh, common credentials or SSH brute force attacks and things like that, right? These low end attacks include sending out spam to millions of addresses with, you know, phishing stuff, pretending to be from a bank or whatever, or uh, just spam in general, or, you know, hoping that someone will fall for it and click on the poison link and he says, he thinks of these as kind of like the background radiation of the internet, hmm. but then you have high-skill, low-focus attacks. These are more serious. These are attacks that use, uh, you know, sophisticated stuff like uh, newly discovered zero-day vulnerabilities that haven't been patched yet mm-hmm. against software and systems network. Um, these are the sort of attacks that target, um, you know, target the the retailer there. Uh, J.P. Morgan Chase, and a lot of the other commercial networks that we've seen that had their problems in the past year or so, mm-hmm. right? They weren't necessarily targeting Target. They were just going for anybody who had a big stash of credit cards.
0: Yeah, and systems that were vulnerable to what they had available
1: yeah, to use. exactly. So we have some zero-day. We'll just get anybody who happens to be vulnerable to this zero-day.
0: Yeah. Um, and, 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 and I think, isn't it sort of like, uh, even for a high-scale crime-like, uh, like the Target attack, isn't it sort of the perfect timing because there's an established black market where you can buy these kinds of vulnerabilities. There's a ton of XP machines in production that probably haven't been patched in a really long time that are doing pro- uh, credit card transactions and they're reading that stuff right out of memory. There's bad implementations that have these networks connected to the internet, like through a vendor VPN, that are easy to take advantage of. You add it all up, it's 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 really it, – it, it, it. I think an audience member of the TechSnet program could
1: pull it off. It's not like it's yeah, – uh, In particular, it's not like they set out to get Target and then found the uh, air conditioning management company. It was more that they were just um, probably low-level attack all over the place and then happened to manage to compromise something at this um, environmental management company. Mm And then, while poking around there, discovered that mm. they had found a backdoor into Target, and su- then went on. I from there, suppose with any of
0: these, there's always a possibility of a former employee with, you know, sort of an understanding of how the networks are connected. Says, you know, I think if you did this, you'd be able. To... I mean, there's that possibility. I right. suppose in some yes, cases. Yes, and that's
1: our next story. That's kind of about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, it, it's uh, you know, in the case of Target, it seems more like they stumbled across an unlocked door, and then once they got in, they didn't just grab the first thing they saw. They right. knew, hey. Right. Hey, we see I, something I noticed that nobody ever locks this door. <laughs> so yeah. we can keep coming back and figure out exactly when the big shipment is, you know, for, say, Black Friday, and then steal all the credit cards. Yeah, uh, And then uh, Schneider goes on, uh, even scarier are the high-skill, high-focus attacks, the type that hit Sony. These include sophisticated attacks normally run by national intelligence agencies. But he's not saying that all high-skill, high-focus attacks are necessarily committed by governments, just that the attacker it has to be highly motivated right it, if it's a high focus attack it means you don't want to get just anybody you're after one specific target and you're just going to keep trying until you get in there yeah uh, whereas most attacks it's more like I'm going to try against everybody in the first door that I get through I'm going to go in mm-hmm. right uh, this category includes private actors including uh, you know hacker groups like anonymous uh, which mounted the Sony style attack against HB Gary if you remember that Mm-hmm. Back from years ago, mm-hmm. uh, and you know the unknown hacker who stole the racy celebrity photos from Apple's iCloud using the the API to reset the password or whatever, or to brute force it, and posted them, or you know the IT security buzz phrase "advanced persistent threat" and all that. You know those aren't necessarily governments; they're just highly motivated attackers. Um, and he brings up the point here: the attackers who penetrated Home Depot's network. Didn't seem to care much about Home Depot. They just wanted a large database of credit card numbers to steal. So any retailer would do. Right. And as we cover in the roundup, it seems like they also got Staples at about the same time. And, you know, again, they didn't care which retailers. They just wanted anybody who had big stocks of credit card numbers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so say low-focus attacks uh, are easier to defend against, right? If Home Depot's system had been just a little bit better than the store next door to it. Then the hackers would most likely have moved on and got those guys instead. Mm-hmm. Uh, although you know, they'll just keep. Uh, once they get yeah. all the low hanging fruit, they'll start. But I think up actually
0: the fruit. that point right there is worth maybe triple underscoring because uh, a lot of times I see people, especially end users, they just sort of get this oh, "what's the point" attitude. Right. What am I going to accomplish if somebody wants to get in, they're going to get in. And what in reality, what if it is, is if you know, you lock the front door. Well, then somebody's more likely to go in the door that's not locked than, go, than try to go through the door that's locked. And it's even, exactly. if, even though they could break a window and get in, a little bit extra helps. That's why we all lock our door, right? It's the exactly. same kind of thing. It's like even if you could just try to stay on top of it, do your best ability, that just might make it difficult enough that they go somewhere else.
1: Right, or the old attitude, you don't have to outrun the bear, you just have to outrun the other guy.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's another
1: great way No, that's for it. a low-focus attack, because the bear yeah. doesn't care, right. it just wants to kill someone. bear's just hungry. Yes, whereas, you know, if it's a sniper, if they're after you, running's not going to, even if you outrun some other person, if they want to shoot you, they're going to get you, not the other person, mm. just because they're closer. You know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, because of that, Uh, if you're the target of a low-focus attack, then all you have to do is be better than the other guys uh, or your neighbors or whatever. But if it's a highly-focused attack, then you have to uh, go further. Um, With attackers who are highly skilled and highly focused, the matter is whether a targeted company's security is superior to the attacker's skill, not just to the security measures of other companies. Uh, You know, often it isn't, but it's... uh, As people, we're much better at this relative security rather than absolute security, Mm. right? We can have better security than our neighbor, but we couldn't say that we have absolute security.
0: Sure. Yeah, yeah, that's fair.
1: Uh, You know, um, Snyder says, we know people who do penetration testing for a living. This is real, no-holds-barred attacks that mimic a real full-on assault by Mm -hmm. a dogged expert hacker. And we know that the experts always get in because Mm. the job's not over until they do. Right? So they're just going to sit there and keep doing it and billing until he. (laughs) Yeah. uh, So against the sufficiently skilled, funded, and motivated attackers, all networks are vulnerable. Uh, But for those worried uh, that what happened to Sony could happen to you, uh, Snyder kind of has two pieces of advice. The first is if you're a corporation, take this stuff seriously, right? Security is a combination of protection, right? So having stuff to stop them from getting in in the first place, detection, finding out when they get in. You know, Home Depot didn't have any clue that they had been hacked until the law enforcement said, Hey, you've been attacked. Or Staples didn't know until the banks are like, Hey, you're the common denominator in all these stolen credit cards. (laughs) Right? So you need better detection because if, you know, we've agreed that if you're being targeted by a highly skilled, highly focused attacker, then your network is going to be vulnerable in some way. But if you can detect when the attacker is breached, you can shut them out. Fix the hole they used, and then go back to hoping they don't get in again. Right. Whereas if you don't detect it, then they're in there for a long time. Uh, and then thirdly is response. How do you deal with it once you do find out that someone's been in your network? Right. You know, uh, we saw the when the U.S. Post Office got had they had to they just turned everything off and rebuilt it one by one. Now that can work, but if your business is critical, maybe that's not so much of an option, and you need to have come up with a better strategy for isolating things, right? Uh, you need uh, prevention to defend against those low-focus attacks, right? If you make sure you keep things patched up and you have, uh, you know, bastion hosts and firewalls and so on, that'll help. Uh, and it makes the targeted attacks harder. But then you also need detection to spot the attackers who inevitably do get through. And you need response to minimize the damage, restore security, and manage the fallout that happens. Uh, so, yeah, it is. Just And then uh, his second point was the other people that were really hurt by this attack were the employees of Sony who yes. necessarily didn't do anything wrong. That's, that's had the sad all that's the private part. Private emails and stuff. Yeah. And he mostly just points out for individuals, you have to look at the fact that you know everything you write on Facebook, technically, even if you send it as a private message, if Facebook got hacked, other people could see that. And how big of a deal is that to you? And so you again, you come back to making sure you don't post things you wouldn't want anybody to see. Mm-hmm. And you know, you just Snyer's even kind of uh uh given up on trying to avoid having his data stored in a cloud somewhere or somewhere, you know, he says it's pretty hard to avoid Google and iCloud and,
0: mm-hmm. and and uh a Dropbox and I mean all
1: that yeah, stuff. And yeah. and so it doesn't mean give up, it just means make sure you keep in mind that, you know, make sure that this gets stored here and this goes there and and you know just think about the fact that When you post something or when you send something to one of these companies that something could happen. And then uh, the second part of this story is uh, Security Week has some details about uh, the tools the attackers used to get into Sony, apparently. Oh. Uh, So investigators believe a newly identified SMB worm was used in the attack. So this is a server message block. It's how Windows file sharing works. Yeah. So, the SMB worm propagated through the infected network using a brute force authentication attack. So, it would just keep trying username and passwords Jeez. until it could get into the file share. Jeez. And uh, then it would connect back to a command and control server to find out who else to scan and report the results it got so the other bots could cross reference and so on. Uh, and the command and control servers were located in Thailand, Poland, Italy, Bolivia, Singapore, and the United States. Uh, and the worm had five major components. Uh, The one was a listening implant Uh, that would just, like, try to capture information. Uh, A lightweight backdoor that would allow the attacker to come in and take control of the machine. A proxy tool for uh, allowing the attacker, so uh, the machine that was compromised could connect out to the command and control server or whatever, and the attacker could come back in through that link and then be inside the network and go around. Like, uh, normally you have a firewall and you do what's called um, stateful packet inspection. So people inside the network can connect out, but people outside aren't allowed to connect in to just any host they want, right? But if I've compromised the machine of a secretary and her machine connects out to my command and control server, I can come in through that connection and then use her machine inside the network to connect to some host that normally I wouldn't be able to reach from the internet.
0: Or maybe in this SMB uh, worm here, uh, maybe, you know, just knock on doors constantly until you get in on the network. Just try different passwords everywhere. So once you
1: have a machine, then you find out where it can reach and then use it to reach it, right? So even a machine that's isolated so that, you know, only certain machines in the whole company can reach it. You know, if I go from the secretary Harry's machine to her boss's machine, who is allowed to connect to the secret network to, or the secure network to get to that server, I can use this, the proxy in this malware to bounce from the secretary's computer to the boss's computer to that inside network. Um, I think one of the worst stories we covered in... The Christmas episode, I think. I talked did I when I talked about the uh the backdoor I wrote in Visual Basic for my high school. <laughs> uh I don't know if I I don't know. I I think I don't know if that's one of the ones that made it in the episode, but it's one of the ones I went and found I, and submitted. I
0: think it might be possible to be reminisced about it on the live stream, maybe, but yeah. I don't know if you've shared about I don't know if you shared it All in you know. a recording uh, of the show.
1: Okay. Right. But anyway, uh it was a little backdoor I wrote in Visual Basic for like Windows ninety five or whatever. Uh but the problem was the school had NAT, so I couldn't take over machines at the school when I was at home. Yeah. So <laughs> I got them to let me install a server in the math office, and all the infected machines in the school uh, would connect to that server in the math office, which then connected to my house, mm-hmm. and there was a server at my house, and I could tunnel backwards through those connections uh, to take over machines at the, at the school. They didn't realize that's what it was doing, but that's what it was doing. <laughs> Very nice. Uh, anyway, so that's, that's what the proxy tool did. And then they had a destructive hard drive tool and a uh, destructive target cleaning tool. So uh, th- what they actually did is when they were done, they actually deleted some of the... Uh, uh, like they wiped the hard drives of some of the machines when they were done.
2: Mm.
1: Partly just to disrupt Sony, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and partly, you know, to erase their tracks. So uh, if Sony had detected this sooner, they could have... Uh, shut it down, right? And that's kind of where that, um, uh, was it Lockheed Martin had that kill chain technique they talked about? And it's like, these are all the different steps where we could have stopped the hack right? and uh, kept it from escalating. Right. So if they had detected it when they'd taken over the secretary's machine, then they might not have been able to bounce to the next one or the next one and so on. Or if they detected all these brute force attacks against their file shares, they would have been like, ah, that machine's infected, let's disinfect it, and now... Figure out how the attacker got in first and it would have kept it from escalating. Mm. Or even if they just detect the attack and fix the one infected computer and then notice another one and another one, eventually they would figure out and and they might have stopped it before it got any further. But they apparently weren't looking at their Windows audit logs. (laughs) Not that anybody ever does, but you need an automated (laughs) tool for that. But then you come back to the target thing. They had the automated tool. It detected the attack, but it detected so many other things. Yeah, was too much they noise. Stopped. They just ignored, turned yep. the buzzer off because yep. it was beeping all the time.
0: Oh, yeah. It's always it's always making that air. Just uh, mark that as red. It's good.
1: Yeah. Uh, and so uh, US CERT put out an advisory about the worm. Uh, they didn't mention Sony, but they're oh, a major entertainment industry person or mm-hmm. whatever. Uh, but, yeah, that's the story there. Well,
0: there you go. Wow, that's fascinating. Uh, so an SMB share scanner could have been what started the whole thing at Sony. They would have had to get it on the network somehow. But once they got it
1: on the network, most likely spear phishing or something like that, right?
0: Yeah. Wow. Or somebody just kicked it off internally. Again, there has been rumors it's been an internal thing. So.
1: That's the next story.
0: I know, I know. In fact, before we get to that, why don't we take a minute and talk about how you could build your own cloud with DigitalOcean. That's what I've been doing. I've got three DigitalOcean droplets right now. One's for development stuff that doesn't doesn't really see the light of day much, but it will probably. Uh, An own cloud server that we're using more and more for production stuff for Jupyter Broadcasting, which is great. I love to write my show notes in plain markdown text. I save it to my own cloud DigitalOcean droplet, and then when I'm all done, we uh, ship it off usually through a Google Doc or something like that to the other hosts. And it's nice having all of my own cloud synced right to my DigitalOcean droplet, and I've got BitTorrent sync up there as well. And my phone syncs to it. And I've got it all just right up there at the DigitalOcean cloud on my own cloud. And here's what's awesome about DigitalOcean is it's really easy to get going. In fact, you can get started in less than a minute. And pricing plans start at only $5 per month. Get you 512 megabytes of RAM, a 20 gigabyte SSD, one CPU, and a four, or I'm sorry, one terabyte of transfer. I was just going to say, I recently upgraded my DigitalOcean droplet to a 40 gigabyte SSD. Mm -hmm. I think it has two gigabytes of RAM. I mean, it is an amazing screamer. I love doing updates just to see how fast they download. But the other thing is, is that I've got flexibility in where I can deploy these. So if I need to get performance, or maybe I want to spread things around, or like, in the case of the BitTorrent sync servers, I've got a DigitalOcean droplet in San Francisco, and one in New York. They've got data centers there, they've got them in Singapore, Amsterdam, and even London. So you get a little global diversity, but it's really about their interface. I mean, it's all about that interface. It's so sweet. It's intuitive, but yet extremely powerful. And you can even replicate it on a larger scale with DigitalOcean's really straightforward API. They've got a bunch of great apps you can take advantage of already. DigitalOcean.com, but guess what? It gets even better. We've got a promo code. In fact, we're we're still using the month of December because we might have a little change in the format of our promo code soon. So rock... Our old December promo code, while it still lasts, that's December, It'll give you a $10 credit over at DigitalOcean. You could try out the $5 rig for two months for free. You don't even have to put a credit card in there. And also, DigitalOcean's double-downing on their tutorials. They're even willing to pay you for it up to $200. $200 for a tutorial. And I found this one over on the DigitalOcean site that I thought might be of interest to the TechSnap audience. Uh-huh. How to audit network traffic in a LAMP server with, Sys- with SysDiag on CentOS 7 or Sysdig. Sysdig, that's what it is. And Sysdig is an awesome tool. Uh, so this is a really great tutorial, if nothing else, to learn about Sysdig. It's super slick. And uh, it's all just laid out right here for you on the DigitalOcean website. Boom. Look at that. Really nice. They've got so many awesome tutorials. And if you've got an idea for one, they'll even pay you. They've got editors that work with you. DigitalOcean.com. Use the promo code SnapDecember. Rock December while you still can. Get a $10 credit over at DigitalOcean.com. And a big thank you to DigitalOcean for sponsoring the Tech Snap program. You guys are rockin' and my droplets are a rockin'. Okay, Alan, so uh, now do we turn to Norse for our next series of stories or where are we yes. going? It's That's continuing the to.
1: Sony thread, right? Yes. Uh, so uh, Norse thinks they've identified about six individuals they believe to be behind the Sony hack and it includes at least one ex-employee of Sony. And uh, they're basically saying our evidence seems to be a lot better than the government's claims that it was North Korea.
0: So they actually think they've identified six people. Yeah.
1: And they're not in North Korea, I take it? No. Uh, Related to the the GOP hacking group uh, that took credit. Right. Uh, So Norse is an attack intelligence company. Yeah. They basically uh, install devices to monitor uh, the attacks against all their different customers all over the person. They they put these little probes everywhere and they run like honeypots and and see what... uh, types of attacks people try to do and even uh, finding zero days before we know that they're a zero day. Mm -hmm. So seeing oh, people keep trying to attack this service all of a sudden with this weird thing. Like, Oh, that that actually points out a bug in this app. I see what they're trying to do here. And so they can actually detect and stop attacks before they've actually been identified that what the attack is. Uh, But uh, using their data and their uh, research facilities and it kind of Brian Krebs-ish style research. Uh they think they have uh, a rather unsurprising conclusion that it wasn't North Korea, it was you know, people that are highly skilled and uh mixed with some knowledge from inside. An ex-employee uh, the North.
0: nonetheless, yeah. which sounds really in line with the level of knowledge it seems people had.
1: Yeah. Uh so a lot of the research actually involved the data that was leaked. <laughs> uh so HR, uh, human resources files that were leaked uh, in the hack, kind of provide a motive. Um, in the spring of 2014, uh, Sony did a massive restructuring and laid off a bunch of long employees, especially in the IT division. IT area, yes. Yeah. So after researching the online footprint of a list of all the individuals who were fired and who had uh, the means to be able to access sensitive data on the Sony network... Uh, Norris was able to identify a small handful of employees who had expressed anger on social media following being fired from Sony. Hmm. Uh, They include one former employee who had been at SPE for 10 years, and who is described as having a very technical background. So you know, being highly skilled, like uh, we're looking for, right? we need highly skilled, highly motivated attackers. Uh, The researchers from the company also followed that individual online and noted their participation in IRC chats where they observed communications with other individuals affiliated with the underground hacking group, uh, GOP that had uh, executed the attack, and other hacktivist groups in Europe and Asia. Uh, According to the CTO of Norse, uh, the Norse investigation was eventually able to connect an individual directly involved in conversations uh, with the Sony employee Mm. to uh, owning the server that had the earliest known version of the malware that was used in the attack uh, back in July of 2014. Uh, So, you know, they managed to tie employees to people that were definitely at least tangentially involved in the attack. You know, obviously without the ability to take over these servers and do forensic analysis on them or, you know, more inside information from Sony, they can't make definite conclusions. But uh, they say what they've uncovered looks a lot more plausible than what the the government is trying to claim.
0: Yeah, and uh, you know it, another thing that's uh, never really made sense about it to me is because uh, I, I remember following this right as the story started, and I never saw complaints from the supposed uh, GOP about uh, the interview. Nothing about that. It was always about Sony's policies. It was, it was about getting money from Sony. It it didn't have anything to do with a movie. Uh, so that never seemed yeah. to line up either with the supposed motive of North Korea. However, yeah. Alan, I gotta say, just yesterday, uh, the director of the FBI, James Comey, came out and said that uh, that uh, even though these uh, uh, very serious people—oh no, I'm very serious folks—he called them—are are doubting that it's North Korea, that they don't see what he sees, and that they witnessed them connecting to a mail server from North Korea when they forgot to use a proxy. So it's kind of like.
1: Right.
0: How do we know that's true? He says, well, and I can't tell you. only
1: has 16 IP addresses.
0: He says, I can't tell you how I know that because then that would be revealing sources and methods.
1: Right. I have secret knowledge, which I will never share with you, but you should definitely believe me. Yeah. Sounds pretty government-y to me. Yeah. So, I don't know. Um, Yeah. It's, um, yeah. Ah, Their conclusion seemed to make a little more sense than it was North Korea because... North Korea wouldn't have much motive to just dump this information on the internet for everybody.
0: That was the other thing, right? Wouldn't they want to hold on to it, you know, sort through it, exploit it for
1: different purposes? Like, if they just went through and deleted Sony's computers and stuff and, and, or, you know, uh, released the movies, all the unreleased movies just to try to damage Sony financially. Yeah. But dumping the employee data, like, I don't know. It doesn't seem like North Korea would care. Well, and asking for money. Why would they ask for money? Yeah doesn't seem to make much sense either about it. Um,
0: yeah, and they, the way they were so no, rightfully It's entirely
1: owned. possible that North Korea and the GOP were both attacking Sony at the same time. And because the government saw one unproxy connection back to North Korea, they blamed the whole thing on North Korea. Well, and my
0: question would so be perhaps— North, North Korea perhaps- could have
1: been trying to do it and just not succeeding where the Guardians of Peace did.
0: Yeah, according to Norse's attack map, or everybody's under constant attack by everybody. Uh, I I wonder, though, like that, you know, we talked about that SMB malware, or Trojan. What if, I mean, you know, just like, just take it all the way. Like, what if it was an inside employee and just they knew the credentials? Because we know from the leaked data, they weren't using very good passwords. It was like Sony123 with like a zero for the O. And like, maybe they just knew what the SMB passwords were and just put it in the Trojan. And I read, and I, I don't have an article to it, but I read that in the malware that they saw hard paths... Coded in the malware, like file server paths in the malware, like yeah. actually set in the. So
1: if that's true, if
0: that's true, wow, that that to me is a is a right. dead ringer I mean, for insider. inside. And,
1: and although some of that you can get from just intelligence gathering, but yes, it's, it's I having so, knowledge yeah. of the network definitely helps.
0: I'm gonna search for it right now because I did yeah, read that over but- the.
1: Hard yeah, it'd packs. be great to have a link for that because I don't have one. Yeah, I read uh, that over the holiday. Also, in the show notes, I uh, have a bunch of videos. Uh, Norse was interviewed on uh, MSNBC, CBS, and CNN uh, about their, their side of the story. Uh, and uh, they also have some interesting blog posts, including, um, you know, uh, uh, the yes, first one, this one. Uh, is The Nature of Cybersecurity and Strategies for Unprecedented Attacks. Uh, you know, Sony kept trying to say how this is like though the biggest hack yes, ever or whatever on U.S. The, soil it, in the it homeland. Was, it yeah. was like you know so hard to defend against. It was impossible. It's like not necessarily. <laughs> uh, but Norse looks at what you know again. It's it's not you can't prevent every attack from succeeding, but you can mitigate it, and you have to detect it and mitigate it and respond to it.
0: Okay, and I found it. And this was this was a fantastic takedown uh, that uh, came out right before the FBI. Uh, Restated, they thought it was North Korea by a Mike. I'm sorry, Mark Rogers, uh, writing for the Daily Beast, and he breaks down why it's not a North Korea hack, and he does a really good job. He even tell, he even goes through the IPs that they supposedly connected to. And why uh, you know why could why those IPs are interesting? But here's what he says. He breaks down the top five reasons why he doesn't think it's North Korea. Number five: hard-coded paths and passwords in the malware make it clear that whoever wrote the code had extensive knowledge of Sony's internal architecture and access to key passwords. Well,
1: not necessarily. It's one item, though. Yeah, but uh, so somebody gave the person who wrote the virus that information. It wasn't necessarily the ex-employee who wrote the virus. Not necessarily, but it could be.
0: It could be. Right, but is yeah. You combine that so with the layoff the of the IT folks and all of that, it could be, you know, it could yeah.
1: be. They definitely got that information probably from the former Sony people. I'm just saying it wasn't necessarily the Sony yeah. person that wrote them out. Yeah, yeah, right, right, yeah.
0: I, I follow you. All right, so I'm dropping that in the show notes too, so we have it. Okay, Alan, is there anything else we want to cover on... Uh... Well, you only covered like two. What are the next... Oh, oh, five. oh, okay. Oh, 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 you want me to go through them? Well, oh. might as well. Okay, sure, all right. Uh, so here, uh, number one... Uh, The fact that the uh, the attack only brought up the anti-North Korean bias of the interview after the media did. The film was never mentioned. Okay, we've mentioned that one. Number two, the hackers dumped the data. Uh, why would the state keen on understanding the power of propaganda being so willing to just throw away a trove of information? Number yeah. three, blaming North Korea offers an easy way out for many, many people who allowed the debacle to happen, from Sony Pictures' management through the security team that was defending Sony Pictures' network. Not to mention, there's probably a lot of different legal things that happen, too, if it's a, a,
1: a, a, an act of cyber terrorism, uh, And then right. number well, five is the hard-coded paths. You know, uh, right. So, yeah, for that one, there's a couple things there. But, yeah, um, at the same time, you could say... You know, oh, it was a nation-state attack, so we couldn't possibly defend against it. But then again, it's like, but it was North Korea, so if you can't defend against North Korea, you can't defend against anyone.
0: Yeah, I I think it gives them a lot of outs. That's what I think.
1: Yeah, although at the same time, it seems like, um, you know, your typical insurance policy covers getting hacked, but it doesn't cover acts of war and so on. So it's like not, depending on how does it perhaps maybe though, actually not blaming North Korea would have got some well, but I wonder though,
0: I wonder, this is just total speculation, does it uh, does it change your legal responsibility to like all of your employees, like by leaking Possibly. all of their information if it was an act of cyber war then you don't get, then they can't take you to court and say it was malpractice it was not maintaining right. the network it was, well, it was cyber war,
1: so like, right. does, it, does it maybe protect them from it's entirely possible, yes, and you know, we saw that Sony did a, a quite masterful job with the marketing around their movie that got canceled and then reallowed. Yeah, and, they spun that pretty well for the online yeah.
0: exclusive release. I think they I think the number is now $31 million dollars they've made online sales. Yeah. That's and
1: then uh, which for a bad movie that wasn't going to make that much. Of a thing.
0: Yeah, um, although I think their and, marketing budget was 30 million alone.
1: Right. Uh, the um, the chairman points out that you know the the U.S. government was. Uh, very anxious to have some reason to be able to sanction North Korea some more. Right. And also,
0: we've followed this whole cyber terrorism, cyber war trend since the beginning of the show. And now on the books, as far as history is concerned, we have now sanctioned another nation because of cyber uh, cyber attack. So now we have officially on the books, a cyber attack that warranted a sanction from the president of the United States. That's, I think, from like, drawing a line in the sand, it's a pretty important moment
1: yeah and i'm I'm sure in the new year we'll see them trying to pass some law that uh is horrible in we, under the guise of protecting us from so North Korean hackers.
0: Uh, you, you remember the CISPA, the Cyber Information Security Protection Act or whatever it was? That's yeah. back. Obama even just had a talk where he says, you know, we've got the problem is we know what's going on. So, it, so th- for an example, the FBI is saying, well, we saw it, but we can't talk about it. Well, if we sign the if we sign these cyber indemnification laws, then we can share everything with you and we would know for you would know for sure. So we better get CISPA signed. So they are only going share CISPA.
1: it with me if I'm Sony, not if I'm, say, an open source project or right, I guess. person or whatever. So if it only helps Sony, and I don't want it,
0: (laughs) CISA. It's called. They've actually taken out the P, the privacy. They took out the P, and so now it's called CISA, and it's it's going its way through the system right now uh, in DC, and uh, it's being pushed forward by the Obama administration. They're using this exact thing, and then when they're down on the floor arguing for it, they're going to point to these sanctions as proof. Like just the fact that the sanctions exist are enough proof of them of the problem itself for it to be argued in the legislation. So uh, it's coming. It's coming. I've been tracking it for the Unfiltered show, too. Yep. Uh, all right, Mr. Jude. Anything else we want to talk about? Uh, I that's it for that story. All right. Well, then I'll tell you about something I love to talk about. I'm coming on my two years with Ting. Ting is mobile that makes sense. My mobile service provider. And you can get started by going to techsnap.ting.com. Go over to techsnap.ting.com and just try that savings calculator. Because here's what's cool about Ting. You only pay for what you use. There's no contract. There's no early termination fee. It's a flat $6 for the line and then just your usage. So it makes it crazy economical. So you can go over to the Ting page at techsnap.ting.com, click the Ting Savings Calculator, plug your actual usage in, and see what your bill would be. I'm saving like $2,000 a year by switching to Ting. Seriously. $2,000. Plus, one of the great things about Ting is they have no-hold customer service. They have an awesome, super powerful dashboard. that lets you buy phones, activate phones, deactivate phones, transfer ownership of phones, set up all kinds of alerts and limits. I mean, it's really an amazing dashboard. You can go take a tour of it on their website. It also works great across mobile devices, and they have apps. Uh, so I always like to plug it from time to time because if you've ever been uh, to uh, the Ting dashboard, you'll, you'll never be able to go back. Once you go Ting, you never go back. Uh, and then on, in February, too, they're going GSM. So you're going to have CDMA and GSM service from one provider. Mm-hmm. That's going to be really slick. So go get started by going to techsnap.ting.com. That'll take $25 off your first Ting device. If you have a Ting-compatible device, and you might, they're supporting more and more devices all the time. Well, then they give you $25 of credit. That $25 credit might just last you more than your first month. Plus, if you do the ETF, you're also going to get that as a credit, which then you're really going to get your Ting service at an unbelievable rate. You might even be free for a few months if you take advantage of their ETF. TechSnap.Ting.com. Also up on the Ting blog, their top five apps of 2014. Kyra does the best app picks out there. Seriously, I'm like, I retired from app picks because Kyra's are so much better than mine, and now she's got them all listed up right on the Ting blog. You can go check them out. TechSnap.ting.com. And a big thank you to Ting for sponsoring the TechSnap program. <laughs> so I like Ting so much that I talked about it so much that I made my nose tickle. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, uh, I, got the tech, I got the TechSnap Ting's tickle. I don't yeah. know, I think. Uh, okay, Alan. Well, uh, so uh, our next story is not really uh, a story story. Um, it's, it's more a, of kind oh, yeah, of a. yeah, it's
1: just a short one. Oh, are you, oh, oh! so we do have one more Norse story? We have three Norse stories? No, no, it's not a Norse story. Oh, uh, okay. so The next story is about Twitter. Oh, oh, oh. Uh, so oh, okay. uh, a lot of people probably received a note uh, email from Twitter or saw the news about uh, a bug in the Twitter the API date. causing many of the a- client yeah. applications to get confused. Yeah. Uh, so many Twitter clients, including the popular uh, TweetDeck, uh, started showing tweets uh, saying that they were from last year all of a sudden. And then a bunch of people found they couldn't log in on the mobile client Hmm. and all kinds of weird things were happening. It turns out the problem was with Twitter's servers uh, were sending the incorrect date on all the responses from their uh, uh, API. So in the code, it seems, uh, they had used the wrong uh, variable for the date. So uh, there's a a C function called strftime, which is for helping you format date and timestamps. And it has two different ways to express the year in the date. Uh, there's the common one, which is uh, capital Y, which is uh, replaced by the year with the century as a decimal number, right? So 2014 is 2014. Uh, Or there's lowercase y, which is just 14, right? But when you're reading the man page, if you just start at the top and reading down or or do a search for the word year, the first one that actually comes up is capital G, Mm. which is... uh, Percent %G is replaced by a year uh, as a decimal number with the century, so like 2014. Uh, this year is the one that contains the greatest part of the week where Monday is the first day of the week, uh, which is kind of strange for almost two reasons. But basically what it means is it looks at the week and decides which year contains more of the week. So for the last week of 2014, because uh, the Monday was the 30th, No, the 29th. Monday was the 29th. uh, But that meant that Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday were in 2014. But Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday were in 2015. So it returned the year as 2015 because more of the week was in 2015 than was in 2014. And so all of a sudden, the date stamps being returned by the server were December 29th, 2015, even though it was only 2014. So TweetDeck, when they looked at the year and they compared the timestamp on the tweet from the date the, the Twitter uh, API said it was, then they would be like, oh, this tweet is from 364 days ago, uh, which was, wasn't correct, and it caused problems. But then also, the Twitter client would be like, oh, well, your login session is from 2014, and it's now 2015, the end of the year, so you you logged in more than a year ago, your cookies expired. And and then you would re log in and it would have the right date uh but the server would be like no your cookie's still too old and uh people weren't able to log in and uh so they had uh quite a few different problems there the day that twitter went quiet yeah. <laughs> uh, i just thought that was an interesting one where um someone just you know used the first instance of uh the one that returns uh Uh, the year without realizing that it had a caveat Mm -hmm. or I think uh, it's worse in Java because they use why for both in the the case matters or something or the number of Ys. I forget what it is but there was there's one particular case where it was very easy to accidentally have it do that same thing and I saw a bunch of tweets about it and so I looked into it and I grabbed that Twitter story
0: Hey um we had a huge feedback this week since we took a couple of we had a couple of weeks that were pre recorded and yep. uh, we had one email that came in from Eric in Sweden and it was, it was such a win on his FreeNAS setup that we thought we'd talk about it right here as sort of not a war story, but maybe a success story. Yep. Uh, so he wrote in and said, Hey, Chris Allen in the chat room. For a couple of weeks ago, I wrote in about my concerns choosing hardware for my upcoming build. After listening to the show, it seemed like you and Alan were on the same page as regarding the matter, and off I went. Now it's up and running. FreeNAS 9.3 hosting a ZNC bouncer, Plex, OwnCloud, OpenVPN, and some other delicious things. Of course, I'm also using it for storage, and a Z2 configuration seemed to fit my needs perfectly. I just okay. want to say thanks for a great show, some good, good advice, and share some pictures of what I accomplished. Keep up the good work for the upcoming year. And may your raids be forever safe, and your connections fast, and all your ports guarded well. And he included <laughs> pictures. So here's the guts of the thing. Lots, of, lots of storage there. Looks like he's got a caddy too. No, uh, yeah, he's got a nice like one, two, three, four, five, eight, right? dri- eight bay drive thing. One, yeah, eight. No, more than that. One, two. Holy okay. crap! Look, there's some down here at the bottom too.
1: I see eight. Okay, four hundred fifty watt, watt power last, supply, the, the micro the ATX. Last picture shows
0: it. Yeah. Oh. Oh, I should probably keep going, huh? There's the outside of the rig. It looks really nice. Oh yeah. Look at all them drive
1: trays right there. That's nice. Yep. And it looks pretty short depth, uh, considering the drives seem to intrude almost right to the back where the power supply is. So. Yeah.
0: Yeah, no kidding. Really nice. And a nice big 120 millimeter Very fan
1: small, there. Small uh motherboard by the look bit, I see the RAM, the battery had to be stood on its end to fit. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. So yeah, it looks like it's uh almost yeah, that'd be like uh what's the one smaller than uh micro ati uh itx right yeah yeah, yeah. he didn't say it in the email he was just checking right but uh yeah that looks like a pretty nice setup yeah. and uh, i'm guessing by the sticker there that's western digital reds
0: yeah so congratulations eric and uh hope it runs great for you mm-hmm. uh free is, is is it's amazing uh FreeNAS yeah. is
1: really it's such a cool solution of course and 9.3 is adding all kinds of interesting stuff and 10 is going to be cool Crazy. And uh it is uh it lives
0: with the great folks. It is taken care of, it is mentored by it is cared for by the great folks over at IX Systems. ixsystemscom techs slash Texas where you can go to support the show. Go check mm-hmm. out all of the amazing rigs by IX Systems powered by those awesome Intel Xeon processors. All kinds of great in fact, yep. not even just the Xeons, not exclusive. They've got that new Atom server chip and their yep. Free NAS rig, which is really nice, low power. Really good rig, Alan.
1: Yes, and it even has all the uh, virtualization and uh, encryption offload features, so that it's like having a real server chip, but low power uh, uh, doesn't mean, means you don't need a bunch of fans, and it, it's nice and quiet, so you can have it under your desk and not uh, be bothered by it. Uh, compared to you know the the rig I bought with like twelve hard drives meant to go on a rack, uh, you can adjust the fans in the uh, IPMI interface, and I have them set to be reasonable. So you know when I'm downstairs in my office. Uh, with the rack just there, it's not killing me. Uh, but uh, it was funny when um, my uh, programmer was sitting down there, I just logged in over the IPMI, and I go into the router, which is a little 1U, and it's got, like, a bunch of the tiny fans all stacked together to mm. push the air really hard. Yeah, yeah. And I just, like, turn it to maximum, and I'll like, mm-hmm. <laughs> yes.
2: like, what's going on?
1: <laughs> just, like, all of a sudden, every server in the rack just is, like, howling as I just crank the fans to 100%.
0: Jeez. Yeah, that can get really loud. Uh, you know, one of the things that's neat, uh, and IX system was drawing attention to it here, is uh, how much adoption FreeNAS is seeing as the back-end storage for different virtualization solutions. Like, yes, uh, well, they
1: have the new... Um, all the They're officially supported as a back-end by VMware now. Yeah. They have all the iSCSI offload features yep. to make all that faster. Yeah, it's sweet. Uh, and they're just announcing uh, support for the NVMe devices. So uh, now SSDs, we've pretty much hit the wall as fast as they're going to... Be for a while, uh, so they have NVMe. Uh, is this um, more standard way to do flash on a PCI Express card? Oh, uh, which is much much faster than you're going to get by emulating SATA or whatever. Uh, so these are PCI Express cards. Uh, I think uh, Intel makes some that are supported now, and uh, you're going to get ridiculous mm. speeds off mm. those.
0: Ix notes here in their blog post that uh, FreeNAS tells VMware. That it's thinly provisioned when they're using thin provision, because that's one of the things you can do now with uh, FreeNAS yep. and uh, ZFS uh, or VMware, and it will create ZF- ZFS snapshots to replace the
1: VMware snapshots. Ooh! How cool so is that? You a... can even you can even tell VMware, hey, I have ZFS, yes. so don't don't do your old fashioned horrible snapshots. Right. Do these, and they'll be super fast.
0: Gosh, that is so cool. iXsystems.com has so many great rigs for your solutions, and they also have a great white paper you can grab at iXsystems.com slash TechSnap. Go get that. Check them out. See why Alan and I rave about them.
1: They're really Well, great. in particular, like we just talked about the guy uh, over in Europe there building his machine. It's like when you're trying to build one of these and you're trying to get everything to be just right, it's like I don't know what, exactly which type of hard drive I want. I, do I need an a, a SSD, and how would I partition it or whatever? And there's all these questions and it's always like, is everything just going to work or I'm going <laughs> to buy all this stuff and it's not going to work. And I'm going to like, ah, oh. uh, well, if you just ask, IX for mm-hmm. you, they mm-hmm. do a great job. And it like, seriously, it, it's cheaper. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, not, not even counting the amount of stress you save yourself. Yeah. Yeah. And there's cheaper all around really. Yes. And, uh, they do a great job. In fact, uh, FedEx dropped off another machine to my house this morning. Jeez, oh, I'm so jelly. You're always getting new rigs, Alan. This one actually isn't mine. Oh. Uh, oh. Uh, oh. It's uh, a friend of somebody at IX uh, needed to uh, co-locate a server in Canada, and so they just had their server shipped to... <laughs> but, uh, yes. Uh, I, at first, I was like, why <laughs> is this... Oh, I, I saw the name on it. Ah, oh, makes sense.
0: Well, uh... Speaking of you thorny BSD people, uh, System Disaster episode 71 is out. Yeah, I see you smirking over there, Alan. (laughs) System Disaster. Uh, So you guys chatted with the uh, bloke who's uh, making the shim, right, for FreeBSD, so that way stuff that's uh, getting a system Uh, dependency?
1: He's writing the the shims for System D, uh, mostly just targeting the ones to make GNOME work. Yeah. Uh, he's writing them for OpenBSD, but he's writing them in a oh, portable way oh. so that they'll be available for FreeBSD or Linux for users that don't want System mm. D but still want GNOME. That will be probably well received. Yes. This very uh, cool. So this is just like four or five of the parts of System D, uh, and it's just basically translating the traditional way into what the GNOMEs expecting uh, with his hard. System
0: depending. disaster. I think that's going to get a few last
1: people just to click because of the name. System. Well, we have a professional pun writer on. Yeah,
2: I guess so,
0: yeah. yeah. <laughs>
1: if you've ever looked at our episode yeah. title, I don't know how he does it every single week. I know, we have yeah. to use a chat
0: room. That's, it's. I think he yes, probably. I
1: saw one in the chat room that I really thought was funny.
0: So. Oh, okay. Well, there you go. Uh, yeah, you should join us live, audience. That way you can help name yes. the show. All right, Alan, I think that's everything we have for the news segment. So I guess that means it's time for the TechSnap feedback. <laughs> Thanks for sending your emails to techsnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com or pop in that contact link at the top of the Jupiter Broadcasting website. Or maybe you started a thread in our subreddit over at techsnap.reddit.com. Uh, and by the way, we're doing something special for episode 200. You might have noticed yeah. this is episode 196. And uh, so 200 is a few weeks away. And Alan and I thought a fun thing to do would be to do sort of a special episode and get your stories of how something that we've covered in TechSnap or a, a question we've answered or a tip or a trick that we've covered in TechSnap has helped you at either your job or your school or a project or home office or whatever yep. it might be, we want to read a whole series of them. So if you would send those in, go over to Jupiter Broadcasting's contact page. Choose the TechSnap show. But would you put episode 200 at the beginning of the subject line? Because we want to still get your other emails, too, and we want to be able to sort them appropriately. Sort them out, yeah. Yeah, and uh, we'll uh, cover those. So you've got a couple of weeks to get them in, and we're asking you now to do it. Uh, yes. so that'd be really cool. Pretty We'd appreciate. love to hear it for 200 episodes. So uh, Damon mm-hmm. wrote in, or Demon. No, nope. Damon, I think. <clears throat> Probably not. There's no E. He says, Happy New Year's, guys. On the last live episode, there's a question regarding Linux-based firewall. The viewer or listener noted that they are pretty comfortable with Debian. Well, may I suggest Spherewall, I think is how you say that. What do you think? Spherewall? S-P-H-I-R-E-Wall? Yeah, I'm not sure. Sphere walls firewall, uh, firewall might make sense because it sounds like firewall, right? Yeah. Uh, anyways, it's at uh, sphirewall.net. It's a Debian-based firewall offered as a downloadable ISO. It can go on top of an existing installation as well. It has a web-based administration panel and website documentation. So I went and checked it out, and uh, I gotta say the UI from a UI standpoint looks very compelling. I did the demo. I wasn't super impressed with the rule set because I'm I'm a little more traditional. But one of the things it does that you might find attractive to you if you're not like a firewall pro is it does application level uh, filtering. So you can say GrooveShark or HBO Go or Hulu and you can even do QoS based on just saying I want Hulu to have high priority. It's nice from like an easy to access use kind of standpoint. Yeah,
1: although I, I, I wonder how well that works like without knowing all the IPs of Hulu or something. Yeah, I don't know if it's port-based exactly. or, like, maybe Hulu uses a certain streaming port. I don't know. Yeah, uh, but in general, yes, that's the kind of thing. It looks neat, do. though. I
0: think I'm going to give it a go mm-hmm. at some point point. maybe give it a review on the Linux Action yeah. Show. Well, I'll let you know. That's the first time I've ever heard of it, and I've heard of a lot of Linux-based firewalls. So, All right, uh, Gaffin writes in, and he's confused about file systems because I think sometimes we assume people know something, and they don't always. He says, I've been listening to the show for a while, and I've noticed you talk a lot about file systems. Uh, before listening, I thought there was the Windows file system, and I thought there was a Linux file system. But now I learn Linux can use things like ButterFS, XFS. So these are also file systems, correct? Now I'm a little lost. You talk about GlusterFS, which in your words is not a real file system, but it's on top of a file system. Now I'm completely lost. If you could demystify the word file system, I'd be very grateful. Thanks for taking the time to read this. Yes, you're awesome.
1: I guess, yes, you can be confused between file system... Uh, meaning the software that actually interacts with the storage and, and does it, which is what we're talking about when we're talking about ButterFS, XFS, and so on. Or uh, when you're talking about the Windows file system, generally you're talking just about the structure, like you know, C, Windows, blah, and, and program files and, and the layout of the directories on top of the file system. But even Windows has had two different file systems, right? Uh, you know, We had uh, the FAT, and FAT32, <laughs> and so on, mm-hmm. and then there was uh, NTFS, which is the newer one. Uh, and uh, The Mac has had so, HFS and HFS yeah. Plus. That's uh, about so it, it. Even Windows has had multiple file systems. Yeah. You know, they started with FAT, uh, like 16, and then they had FAT32, and then they went to uh, NTFS. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so uh, one of the differences there is if, you're, uh, if you ever did uh, FAT32, you'll notice that you can't have permissions in your Windows directories and so on uh, versus FAT and so on.
0: Right, uh, because the file system... It mentions
1: FAT12, but that's only for floppy disks.
0: So in the case of uh, like being able to set permissions, essentially the file system just didn't have the fields for those flags to be stored in FAT32? Right.
1: Yeah. It just wasn't... Uh, because it was designed for desktop-type yeah. systems, uh, they were really not meant for multiple users and so on. Right? If you remember Windows 95, uh, there weren't really multiple logins per se... Eventually, it had them so you could have separate wallpaper for different people if, in the family or something, but it wasn't really.
0: If I recall my history correctly, FAT32 for a long time, or maybe even still, I don't know, performed better than NTFS. So if you just needed like raw performance on your home computer, sometimes you might go FAT32 over NTFS.
1: Yes, uh, whereas... The problem with that, though, was that NTFS was better at recovering from an unsafe shutdown. Yeah, forward. it was,
0: yeah. And also the two-gigabyte file limit, right? So the different, different file yes. system had uh, different pros and cons.
1: Yes, and so, yeah, back in the day, there kind of were just the two, right? Windows had NTFS <laughs> and Linux had ext2. Uh, but things have changed quite a bit from there. So, uh, yes, don't confuse the kind of, like, directory structure with a file system. So in this case, a file system is uh the software that maps you know the file the paths and file names on your computer to the actual places where they're stored on the disc whether that's an ssd or a hard drive or whatever actually even uh cd-roms have a file system called cd 90, uh, 9660, uh 9660 and dvds have a file system as well um, but in general uh the the point of the file system is that you can create these uh, objects like directories or files, and uh, it maps those that directory to a bunch of places on the disk where the actual data for it is stored. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know,
0: it's a table of contents.
1: Yeah, uh, originally FAT thirty-two stood for File Allocation Table, which is kind of like an address book, right? You say so. It was like finding someone's address in the phone book. You would go through your phone book, which is the file allocation table, and you would find, you know. Uh, myhomework.doc, the file you made in Word doc. And instead of a phone number, it would be a list of the sectors on the disk where the various bits of your document are stored. And you could then uh, pull that up and read the file and open it in Word and do whatever you want to do with it. Uh, and then we got more advanced as we started attaching extra things to it, like, mm-hmm. oh, we have these permissions, so this file can only be accessed by these people or, uh, you know, in ZFS, you have all kinds of stuff like is this file compressed or not, and uh, you know when was it last modified and when it was it created, and uh, you know how many snapshots do we have of it, and all this other stuff. Uh, so yeah, the, the file systems are uh, what manage the files and where they actually get stored on the disk. And for example, like you said, in FAT32, um, they use a 32-bit number, a signed uh, number to store how big the file was. Mm-hmm. So that meant that the biggest number you could mm-hmm. write down in the in the <clears> space <throat> they give you uh, for how big a file was was 2 gigabytes. Mm-hmm. And uh, it just couldn't be far bigger than that, line. it wouldn't allow you to save yeah. uh, because they'd only left that many characters of space. I'm not sure why they used an unsigned number since a file could never be a negative size. If they had just used a signed mm. 32-bit number, then files could have been 4 gigabytes without a problem. Maybe they, hmm. But they reserved that they first bit to be a positive it. negative sign. and Yeah you know, at the time, I imagine nobody was really thinking about anybody having you know people like my my hard drives at the time were four and five hundred megabytes. Mm-hmm. Uh, nobody was thinking about two gigabyte disks where hopefully we're going to get there, not I have a single file that's two gigabytes,
0: right. And even then, if well, if I had that many files and that many drives, I just manually sort it out. it's not it's not yeah. that common of a problem. <clears throat> yeah, uh, so that's kind of the basics. Uh, now he, where he gets confused is uh, when we talk about things like GlusterFS in which he says is not a real file system but
2: yeah, it has a so, file system uh, as a name.
1: It kind of uh, right it, it has uh, it basically pretends to be a file system but under, underneath instead of looking for which block it is on the hard drive GlusterFS goes oh I'm going to find out which server actually has this block on it and then ask the file system there so it's kind of a virtual file system that sits on top that basically allows you to merge a bunch of of servers into one uh, representation of a single file system.
0: Yeah, which is a great way when you have a, like, I have storage in this server over here, I have some storage in this server over here, right? So you can kind of
1: pool that together. Exactly. And you can also set it up so I have five servers and I want to make sure that uh, every time I save a file, it gets saved on two of the five servers. Right. right. So I can have five servers, and I can have this total combined space of four of them, and then every file is actually going to be written to at least two different servers. So if one of them goes down, right. I still can read all the So I guess files. another way to kind say of like it RAID is... Kind 5 across a whole bunch of servers.
0: Another way to say it is the applications look at Gluster, whatever you have mounted for GlusterFS as a file system, but really GlusterFS yeah. itself is just sort of ex- abstracting the file systems underneath that it talks to.
1: Right. So, yeah, the file system is basically the layer that goes between the user and the application uh, and deals with actually s- sorting out how the data is stored on the disk. Uh, and in the case of GlusterFS, it's emulating that in where it's actually uh, figuring out which server the data is on and then asking the file system on that server to then repeat the process. Which can be pretty crazy if you think
0: like sometimes GlusterFS can be sitting on top of another thing that's maybe doing volume management and RAID. Yeah. And, like, it can get pretty complex. Yeah. So, okay. <clears throat> all right. Uh, that's a good yes. question.
1: So, the the file system basically is just the layer that uh, takes care of all the complicated stuff for you.
0: Yeah. Uh, Okay, so Count Zero writes in with something that – I want to get your opinion on this, Alan. He says, uh, Mm -hmm. UK ISPs are using malware-like tactics. Just a quick snippet I found online over the holidays indicating that UK ISPs are beginning to use the kind of malware-spreading techniques that often result in Windows users getting infected systems in order to push internet censorship – or, I'm sorry, the UK porn filter. Uh, He goes on to say, of course, you guys know it blocks a lot more than just porn – The method they're using is to intercept your browsing session and redirect you to a page that asks whether you want to opt in for the filter or not. Okay, fair enough. He says, I can't say I like websites that redirect me because of their connections with malware, but at least this gives the customer a choice. However, rather more egregiously, they are apparently soon to be implementing a system by which users who don't make the decision when prompted will have the filter turned on by default. As usual, they're taking the old think of the children argument... Whatever happened to Responsible Parenting, he adds. If we don't start to make our internet take our back internet soon, we're going to be left with unusable service. Sorry about the long yeah. email, and here's the original article
1: on the uh, ISP so yeah, review. Basically what they're doing mm-hmm. is uh, hijacking your session to ask you, uh, mostly because they don't want to just turn it on for everybody because everybody will be very upset about right. that.
0: Right, and um, they're leveraging their position as your ISP. Stuff that's not
1: even <laughs> necessarily porn, but yeah, they're leveraging their position as their as your ISP to do a man in the middle. But really, it's a little more kind of like you know when you go to the Wi-Fi mm-hmm. when you get on the free Wi-Fi at a hotel or something, and they have a captive portal where you have to agree not to look at porn before you're allowed to use their internet. I, I
0: would assume too, like if you're not using their DNS, you might not have the problem either, right? But I don't know how they're doing it. Um, but that might that might be true.
1: Yes, sometimes, but no, sometimes. Basically, yeah. they can sit in there and intercept uh, even sooner than that. and uh, well, Yeah,
0: I mean, they're your ISP, so.
1: Yeah. <laughs> and it. so uh, because of your ISP, they can also block your access to any other DNS server until you answer the question and so, so on.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, so, so
1: it's sim- mostly similar to a captive portal. It's just people aren't used to getting that on a wired connection and so on.
0: Oh, Inagogo in the chat room says it's actually uh, on the provided router. Where ah. Yeah, that, so. yeah,
1: that's good. Okay, so he says if you if makes you more sense than them trying to actually have some giant piece of hardware yeah. there and actually intercepting these connections yeah. and keeping track of who's yeah, already just put on the
0: firmware. There. It's a feature. Just push it down, auto update. He says he uses yeah. Open WRT to get around this problem.
1: Hmm. Yeah. Ah. Uh, so in particular, he's one of the people that hasn't answered the question yet. and Is going to have his internet all hampered because. <laughs> Yeah, when this goes into effect, it just time. assumes yes. Yeah, or all the people that don't even realize that this is happening because they have OpenWRT or, or PFSense or something. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <clears throat> well, oh, and man. So, I hope this yeah. doesn't spread. I hope this idea and, doesn't take off. we've seen uh, Comcast doing the same thing to make you agree to uh, not pirate movies yes. if you get a notice. And right, yes. We're seeing this a lot, and I definitely don't think they should be able to do that. Uh, although... Other than uh, adding a note in your monthly bill about it, I don't know how else they can uh, ask you to do things like that. They
0: actually send a very official-looking separate mailing uh, that's like a a super special kind of thing. It looks very official. Mm -hmm. Uh, All right. Not that I would know, Alan. Not that I would know. But I might know. Matt writes in uh, with a great question. Alan and I are huge fans of Bacula Backup and we do mention it from time to time because we both love it so much. And he wants to know if we could cover how Alan runs Bacula, how many backup servers are running Bacula and how do you monitor the success or failure of the Bacula backup jobs and how do you do test restores, etc. I'm looking to replace our current semantic backup 2010 system with Bacula. We have about a dozen Windows servers and around twenty Linux servers. I figured out the Windows client. It connects and works just fine. I'm just looking for more of best practices and how to verify backup and restores with Bacula. Do I run one massive job to backup all the servers or is it better to break them all out into multiple jobs? for individual servers. I'm going to do a disk backup, not to tape. He's going to disk. Mm -hmm. I would like to run incremental jobs daily, differential jobs weekly, and full jobs monthly. Is that the best way? Anyways, thanks a ton for the show. Been listening since episode one. Keep up, and any advice would be greatly appreciated. So, Alan, your bacula wisdom, sir. Uh,
1: Yeah. um, There's a couple of different things. Uh, Obviously, uh, Dan's a little better at this stuff than I am. Uh, but yeah, so we have uh, two Bacula servers that then talk to our storage daemons, and um, we run a separate job for each server. And the way we monitor them is it actually sends us an email if it fails. Uh, but you can also uh, there's stuff in Nagios to to you know set off an alert if if there hasn't been a backup of a server in at least two days or something like that. Uh, for testing a restore, uh, you can just fire up the Bacula client and do a restore to a subdirectory or something. And it doesn't have to be on the original server. So uh, I can just back up to some other place uh, or res- do the restore to another place. Uh, nice thing for this, obviously, uh, if you're backing up FreeBSD servers, you can restore into a jail as in the whole system, right? And then you can just make sure it boots properly. I like that. <laughs> and so on. Uh, or you can also, uh, if you want to test your bare metal or whatever, restore to a VM.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, this actually has a double factor because. So, if you have a backup of a server and that server physically dies, like say the power supplies die or whatever, and it takes you a couple days to get a replacement part. You're probably going to have to do a VM anyways. Yeah. Exactly. You want to be able to run it in a VM uh, to get the service back up and running anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, uh, when back in the day before I started scaling, one of the things we were looking at doing was actually offering Bacula as like a service. And an extra service we would offer is, uh, you know, if your server dies, we can uh, restore it to a VM and run it over here to keep your website up or whatever.
0: Hmm. Yeah, that's a great service. Yeah.
1: Um,
0: Too bad TarSnap the, came along and ate your lunch.
1: <laughs> uh well, yes, but even with TarSnap,
0: you would maybe combine it with the two. You would uh, well, I would. That's what I was thinking. Is you would point that TarSnap could do some offsite backups from that disk backup.
1: Yep. Do you? But you uh, you do backup to disk, right? Uh, yes, I back up to disk as well. Um, <laughs> in particular. Uh, One thing Dan does is make sure he stores his catalog. So Backyard has a catalog, which is basically a MySQL or PostgreSQL database um, that contains all of the, you know, the directory structure and all the files, so that you can browse through the sets of files and pick out what to restore. And there's also a bootstrap file that's required to restore. You could back up just those, the catalog Mm -hmm. and the bootstrap, to your tar snap. Yep. uh, So that you can then use your your backups to do whatever
0: that's a fantastic idea that's a yeah. really fantastic idea uh, uh, that's a really great then, way to yeah, go so
1: I we run a separate job for each uh, server. Uh, I actually have separate jobs for ha, each jail Have you fact, ever sometimes. done
0: the bare metal like total restore feature that it offers?
1: Uh, no because I've always done freebsd servers so okay. uh, the way those device. work is yeah. I just need my like ETC mm-hmm. and user local ETC. I might even decide to reinstall the packages, or maybe I haven't. But basically, if I back up, you know, the, the config files, the uh, home directories, and then all of user local, which is everything I've customized on the server, oh yeah, then I have everything, right? If if there's a database, maybe I need to grab, you know, uh, dump the SQL database or something. But uh, the general idea was, I'm probably not. Gr- uh, most of my servers are remote. I'm not going to bare metal them. I'm going to get a fresh right. server with the OS installed and point. restore it to the yes. right spot.
0: Have you uh, played at all with Bacula Web? Uh,
1: no, that was kind of newer than yeah. Last time it I was actually doing seems like it's still theory. getting
0: quite a bit of attention too. It's
1: yeah. uh, I an- actually wor- paid someone to build most of a really cool interface that would allow you to browse through your Bacula backups uh, by exposing the catalog. Yeah. So if you were a customer, of, uh, my fictional backup service had never launched you would see all the files you had backed up. Oh, sure. You could browse through your directory, pick a file, and see all the different versions of it we had, and we could actually uh, restore individual files to you over the web interface, or you could request a bulk restore.
0: This, uh, this web UI is really interesting.
1: But it's, yes, uh, the Bacula web stuff has gotten a lot better over the years.
0: bacula weborg and they have uh, tutorials on their site on how to set it up on Linux and BSD. So, uh,
1: uh, so uh, a couple of things about his schedule. He looked at doing incrementals and differentials and so on. Yeah. Uh, that's a pretty good schedule. Um, if you're doing remote backups, doing a full every month can be problematic. Uh, like, I had a server that it's got a couple of hundred gigs of data. Mm. So, that full took, like, a long time, especially when I was rate limiting it to not compromise performance. Mm. And then the incrementals are pretty small, and even the differentials were pretty small. So, I was generally doing the full, like, of stretching it out, but then it was like, eh, reading all these different volumes to do a restore uh, but bacula has a newer feature called a synthetic backup or synthetic right. full yeah and what it can do is um, you can take the old full and your recent differentials and then like apply them on top and create a new full without actually doing a full backup
2: hmm.
1: uh, the one thing that bacula has a little trouble with is detecting when you deleted a file so that when you restore the file stays deleted because when you delete ah. a file, it doesn't notice that it's changed because it got deleted. Yeah. Now, it has a system for that, but it slows it down a bit. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, Helio in the chat room asked a good question about uh, DDoop. So Bacula has a couple of things for that. One of them, what they call a base backup. What I did is I'd create a base backup of all of my FreeBSD 9.3 servers. So I can create a base backup of the parts that are common to every server. Right? So I create that base backup. And then I do my backup of each individual server, and it excludes everything that's included in the base. So I only have to back up the operating system parts or the common parts that are going to be the same on every server once, and then I can back up just the custom stuff per server off each of the servers and save a huge amount of space. Yeah, that certainly solves that. Uh, and it has some dedupe stuff. It also has um, in the catalog. It can store the hash of each file. So you can do like the, the SHA-256 mm. of every file as mm-hmm. you back it up. Mm-hmm. And then you can do a verify scan where it'll just check each file and make sure it hasn't been modified. So you can actually use it as a rudimentary like intrusion prevention system, kind of like uh, Tripwire. Go back and verify. Yeah, because the problem with Tripwire is that you're storing the catalog of uh, that you're verifying against in your on the machine that could have been compromised. Whereas with Bacula, you're storing it on another server that you could more safely assume has not been compromised hopefully and so you can run it across uh your servers and be like oh let's see if any files that shouldn't have been modified have been modified on any of my servers Mm -hmm. uh so yes bacula has lots of cool stuff and they have a very good documentation yeah uh dan helped with some of that i think uh but yeah uh they provide a bunch of best practices guides as well and there's some youtube videos that are actually kind
0: of helpful too i linked uh one to get it installed on Ubuntu, and then on the Bacula web, bacula-web.org site, they have links to all the guides right there on the front page towards the bottom. <clears coughs> and the, uh, you can just get started nice. with that.
1: I haven't uh, done that much with Bacula. I've just been keeping it going. Just using it. it. Just it yeah. set it up, and it just works. Yep. Yeah, that's really nice. <laughs> I really do need to look at it. Uh, just poke it. Yeah, for Currently, for Scale Engine, all the important files are, are snapshotted and then replicated. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's kind of hard to use Bacula to back up 20 terabytes of video or 100 mm-hmm. terabytes of video.
0: Yeah, that is a problem.
1: But, yes, uh, Bacula is definitely ideal for doing a whole bunch of different... Mm-hmm. Um, I uh, used it for, servers. like,
0: company file servers. It was great for that. Uh, you know, and then we would go back and we could have restore users' files, and the synthetic backups worked flawlessly for us in that regard. So I was really impressed with it. Uh, but, yeah,
1: and, the synthetic thing is definitely a big win if you're doing remote. Because, uh, you know, one of our clients is well, like a little office or whatever. And so their churn is a couple of documents get created or updated. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, when, once a month we were downloading like the every picture they'd ever taken again over right. their DSL. And it right. would just take like three days to finish backing yeah. up. And then
0: it, sometimes because of that it pushes out like the other regular backups and stuff.
1: It yeah. could get hairy. Uh, and, yeah, uh, the, one of the reasons to use separate jobs for each server is that you can have policies saying, you know, uh so many jobs are allowed to run at once, or, uh, you know, if uh, because it was kind of designed with a little bit of tape in mind, you can say, you know, I only want to write to this hard drive one at a time, mm-hmm. Uh to avoid to keep it faster. Uh, so you can say, hmm. you know, uh,
0: i never really had a problem with disk IO. Of, well,
1: uh, no, because usually you're constrained more by bandwidth. Yeah, right? but yeah, uh, and so, but you can create buckets and say, all right, any th- any of this group can be running at once or you know, or one from any of this group and one from any of this group can be happening at once and mm-hmm, so on. Mm-hmm. So creating uh, as many separate jobs as you can uh, gives you more flexibility uh, to control stuff. But in the end, you don't want to have to restore from a bunch of separate jobs at once. Yeah, there's and a balance you there. want You want, uh, it, making all one job means that you're uh, capturing the data as like a point in time instead of separate. Hmm. Oh, that's the other thing is that especially uh, with uh, any backup system, Part of the problem is if you're backupping all the files on the server, they're probably changing while you're doing that. Mm. And if you back up one file in the directory mm-hmm. now and mm-hmm. the second file after a change, and those two files are independent, you can cause problems. Uh, so if your machines are backing up, support it. Uh, backing up from a snapshot is much better. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it can be required in some and cases I'm, like... Um, I like... Uh...
0: I'm 80% sure the Windows Bacula client supports shadow copies.
1: Yes, uh, Windows uh, does have support for shadow copy and special stuff for like backing up your um, Exchange data store because you can't open that file because Windows locks it. Uh, you can only access it via shadow copy. Um, and uh, so Bacula has a very flexible system where you can run scripts before and after uh, on the host uh, that you're backing up. Yeah. And so you can create ZFS snapshots of your file system then back it up, and then delete snapshot or whatever. Uh, Dan, uh, on his uh, GitHub, has a, his scripts that he uses for backing up all of his jails. So it goes through, gets a list of all the jails that are running, and then just goes through, snapshots it, backs it up, and then clears out the snapshot and does mm. it for each one. I love that. Yeah,
0: I, uh, I'd, I'd used, uh, for a little while, i just used that pre and post to just, like, mount the storage, unmount the storage, and stuff like that, too. Just simple stuff. Yeah. Uh, 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 depending on what the setup was. I was
1: using mine for something as well. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, all kinds of good
0: stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, yeah, good luck, Matt, and uh, maybe let us know how it goes when you're all done. Okay, yeah. so I uh, would love to get your questions. Go over to Jupiter Broadcasting, click the contact link, choose the TechSnap program, or the subreddit, TechSnap.reddit.com. Then you also get the opinions of the other smart folks in our audience, and you could probably get probably an answer a little bit quicker, too. And uh, it probably gets in front of us a little easier, too. So it's like pretty, but I know, not all of you like to do it. You're a bunch of curmudgeons. You like to do the email, and that's fine. And then don't forget... We want those episode 200 submissions. Did the TechSnap show come in handy for you sometime at home, at work, at school during a project where you're like, "Oh, the guys covered this, or the guys talked about this, or they answered yep. this." We'd love to hear that story, maybe a couple of paragraphs of it, nothing too crazy long, so like semi short, uh, and we'll read it uh, for a special celebration in episode 200 coming up in just a few weeks of your TechSnap program. Uh, and uh, if you want to send us it, if you want to send it in directly, that's cool too. I understand you got your Thunderbird all set up, you like it. You don't want to go to a web form. Maybe you're using Firefox and the submit button isn't showing up for you because fire. Never mind. Anyways, techsnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com. That works too. Okay, Alan. With the feedback all done, that means it's time for the snap Roundup. Welcome to the TechSnap Roundup. Yeah, that's what that crazy music means. Now, the Roundup for stories that just didn't quite fit at the top of the show, but we still want to talk about them and give you some links to read up on your own after the show. Throw them in your Instapaper queue, as it were. A lot of these links came from our subreddit over at techsnap.reddit.com. The story that the TechSnap show has been following is the surveillance of your cell phone through various means. We've been talking about it now for a while and in different different employments, and one of the more recent ones we've been talking about are these Stingray Monitoring. Uh, that are yep. super common, apparently. And uh, it's come out now that the FBI is taking a position that court warrants are not required when deploying cell site simulators in public areas that have been called stingrays. Uh, the FBI just made its position known recently during private briefing meetings with uh, set with the Senate Judiciary Committee uh, members.
1: So here's yeah, why. Well, it seems like in general, the warrant should be... Be required to specify which person they're going after and they shouldn't be able to ins- intercept the communications of any person except for that person it's interesting too because this is actually this is like
0: ground zero for this battles in tacoma washington which is uh about uh 45 50 minutes from my from my uh, studio here uh so what uh, the here's what they figure is here's the cases where they're allowed to use the stingray in public cases number one cases that pose an imminent danger to public safety cases which could be a lot of things Cases well, that involve...
1: when that one, it seems like it would be too late by time, you know. Yeah. If it's, say, you know, it's something like the Boston bombing, they unless they have them just laying around everywhere... It, by the time they get one and bring it, to oh, the place no, they and turn do. It on, it'll be way too late. No, it's getting very common
0: in just at the police level. So well, in- it's
1: it's becoming very common for them to have these stingray ones because they can only do 2G, which most places have gotten rid yeah, of. Yeah, that's true. Like, uh, they, they mostly work by protocol downgrade attacks by forcing your phone to use 2G instead of 3G. Yeah, I'm having a stronger yeah. signal than the tower because they're closer. Right, uh, but using 2G because that's the one that doesn't have encryption. Same with the dirt
0: box too. Uh, So, okay, cases that pose an imminent public safety, which uh, that could be a lot of things. Cases that involve a fugitive. So if you've ever been, uh, if you're a fugitive, then that's... Uh, Here's the other one. Cases in which the technology is used in public places or other locations at which the FBI deems there is no reasonable expectation of privacy. So, i.e., if you're in public, then because you have no expectation of privacy, the FBI is allowed to suck down every phone call you're making, track your location and log it, because yes, you're in a public because place. because
1: how does that work? Because if you put one out in a public square, what about the person that lives a block away, and their call gets intercepted even though they're inside? Which is how
0: the technology works, and see, what they're doing is they're equating it to how camera cameras kind of work, like if you're out in public and you have a camera and stuff, but it's not a fair yeah, equation to make. This
1: thing goes through walls.
0: and Well, and it scoops and up private stone. information, like if you take a public picture of me walking down the street, that doesn't mean that picture can listen into my phone call, it doesn't mean yep. that picture or is totally logging my... G- yeah, uh, so I just... So it's its amazing. So anyways, just to continue on tracking that for the TechSnap program. But yes,
1: I do believe uh, the court should rule that the government has to have specific permission for each person that they're targeting. And that the Stingray can't just be turned on to intercept everything. They have to target a specific device. Mm-hmm. And okay, Alan. open SSOS. Although I see the complication that if they're using like a burner, they wouldn't have the IMEA number to get a warrant. So...
0: Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, I know. I do you can see it like from an immediacy standpoint. Uh so yeah, OpenSSL right. has a security advisory for us.
1: Yes, OpenSSL uh did a big security advisory. They've released versions 101K, 100 P and 098 ZD, because they've run out of letters uh four times over. Um and it fixes a bunch of vulnerabilities. The first one was in uh, Datagram TLS, uh which is often used in uh, openvpn and other stuff so you if you have openvpn you'll want to patch this uh this particular one a carefully crafted uh, dtls message can cause a segmentation fault in openssl uh, due to a null pointer dereference and could lead to a denial of service attack so for example if this is used in openvpn and somebody did the attack uh, it would crash the openvpn app and you wouldn't be able to vpn anymore until you went and logged back in or whatever yeah uh Interestingly, this was disclosed uh on October twenty second of twenty fourteen oh. uh oh. by Marcus Strenberg of Cisco. And they fixed and then uh even though it was severity moderate, they just sat on it and didn't uh do anything about it until they had other advisories to release all at once. Gotcha. Uh then they have another security moderate was a memory leak in the DTLS1 buffer record function. Um A memory leak can occur uh, here, and it could allow the attacker to uh, do a denial of service through memory exhaustion. So they could just keep executing the memory leak until they use all the memory on your machine. Yep. Hmm. Uh, This one only affects OpenSSL uh, 100 and 101. Uh, It doesn't affect the 098. uh, But this issue was reported uh, on the 7th of January, so yesterday, uh, by Chris Mueller. Uh, who also provided initial patch, hmm. and then uh, later uh, an OpenSSL team person uh, made the final patch. Interesting thing is that this same bug was fixed in LibreSSL, ah. the uh, OpenBSD fork, in May. Hmm. So I don't know if uh, that was just if Chris was just reporting the one he noticed and that uh, they had fixed, or what. Uh, now, yeah, uh, it's. Uh, I'm not sure exactly how OpenSSL didn't know about the fix in LibreSSL, but they didn't really announce it as a security vulnerability. They just changed the way the error reporting worked and kind of fixed the problem at the same time, I suppose. Uh, but a memory leak's not that big of a security. But anyway, uh, that's the recent one that I guess put them over their magical threshold for the number of advisories they have queued up <laughs> before they actually tell anybody. Yeah. Uh, the next one is that. If you've uh, configured um, OpenSSL in a no SSL3 configuration, then uh, if somebody connects uh, and sends an SSLv3 hello message, then the SSL method is set to null instead of SSLv3 and can (laughs) cause a null pointer dereference. (laughs) Uh, So someone could crash OpenSSL (laughs) by trying to connect with SSLv3 when you've compiled your OpenSSL to not have SSLv3. Right, right. Uh, this was reported on October 17th and uh, was just fixed now. Hmm. Although it seems like that one, the no-pointer dereference would kind of be a big deal. But, it seems like okay. that would be a real pain in the butt to like troubleshoot. Like I said, mean, it's a low-severity one, but Like yeah. as an
0: admin who had that deployed, trying to figure that one out at first? It would be a really
1: bad device or something, because normally you connect and then the server says, I I only support these protocols, and the client's like, oh, yeah, it wouldn't But something uh, hard set must be misbehaving and just sending an SSL v3 hello without actually implementing the protocol. Or maybe
0: like a weird mail client. I don't know what would do but yeah. Uh,
1: There's also um, ECDHE, so that's uh, elliptic curve Diffie-Hellman ephemeral key. I could suddenly downgrade to elliptic curve Diffie-Hellman without the ephemeral key where it uses a fixed key. Uh, An open SSL client will accept a handshake using an ephemeral ECDH uh, cipher suite using an ECDSA uh, certificate if the server key exchange message is just omitted. Mm. This effectively removes all the forward secrecy from the cipher suite. Uh, the whole point of forward secrecy is that if the NSA captures this and l- later on they manage to steal the private key from the place that you uh, were talking to, they can't then later decrypt their message because instead of using the private key of the SSL as the key, you make up a, a key on the fly. Ah, uh, this was reported October 22nd uh, by the Prosecco team. Hmm. There's also an RSA silent downgrade of the export RSA uh, encryption. So if you're using full-strength RSA, you might get downgraded to the old 56-bit version that was back when the U.S. didn't allow you to export uh, strong cryptography. Mm. Mm-hmm. And so uh, this is ba- it's not really related to Poodle, but I'm guessing security researchers decided to look for more Poodle-like things in the code. And on October 22nd, the Prosecco team found this one and reported it. There's also uh, Diffie-Humlin client certificates. uh can be accepted without verification. So, um, again, if you're using something like OpenVPN, where you use certificates to log in, uh, this could actually allow you to log in with a certificate without actually having to have the private key, meaning someone could fake log wow. in as, as wow. the correct user. Wow. Uh, that was reported on October 22nd by the Prosecco team. Hmm. There's also a certificate fingerprints can be modified. Um, where basically on certain non-DIR variations of uh, certificates, the signature could be switched to a different algorithm or something and allow them to uh, not match. Uh, In particular, this one was if you had a forged certificate, like we saw from the old DigiNotar and stuff, and those got blacklisted in the browsers, right? Uh, Google and Firefox, you know, put them in. So if if it sees that certificate, it just blocks it out. But now the same certificate could have its fingerprints slightly changed so that it wouldn't match that blacklist anymore. And then anybody who wasn't getting the newer uh, revocation stuff would uh, accept that certificate. Mm-hmm. And so they fixed that bug, uh, which was reported by Codenomicon, which was one of the guys that discovered Heartbleed. Uh, and they reported it to the uh, National Computer Security Center Finland, and uh, they reported it to OpenSSL. And a second variant of the same attack was reported uh, on... Uh, so the first one was reported December 1st by Codenomicon and a different version of the same attack was reported on December 12th uh, by Conrad uh from Google. Hmm. So two different people discovered that one and they still sat on it. And uh-huh. lastly, the uh, mm. BigNum squaring function may produce incorrect results. <laughs> uh, so it's... they. I'm not sure that it's mathematically possible to do this attack, Mm. uh, but there was a bug where uh, you could uh, find a point on the elliptic curve uh, because the math in OpenSSL was wrong. So uh, the low probability that the BN square uh, produced an incorrect result uh, could only happen uh, once in every 2 to the power 128 times on a 64-bit platform, but uh, it's entirely possible that this could be exploited eventually. And this issue was reported November second uh by Pierre Uhler from bit uh, Blockstream. Hmm. And uh was then fixed uh by Adam Langley from Google. Um speaking of Google,
0: that is our next roundup story.
1: Uh and but, uh, I guess just the my interesting point was here was They've had most of these advisories since like October and they just didn't release them and that seemed weird. Yeah, I did
0: pick that trend up. Yeah, it is. Uh,
1: they came to like every one of them seems to say severity low, severity low, 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 low. So I guess moderate, they just weren't moderate and the moderate ones are bad, old. And it, yeah, it seems like yeah. I don't quite see their logic for holding these back and then when they release them, mm-hmm. it's yeah. Mm
0: mm-hmm. Okay. All right. So, yeah, I, that is interesting. I didn't notice a lot of them in October. Uh, <clears throat> so, Lollipop, Android's uh, latest release. We always like to track where this is going because, obviously, uh, the adoption of this means that uh, security improvements and things like that move out to the Android devices. According to Google's latest Google Play Store results for early January 2015, so just after the big holiday shopping season, less than 0.1% of all Android devices are using Lollipop. Ooh. Uh, for comparison, KitKat reached 1.1 percent adoption by this time. In January 2015, almost two months in for Lollipop, KitKat is still number one with 39.1 percent of the market. It's followed by Jelly Bean versions at 4.1 uh, versions 4.1.x of Android sit at 19.2 percent of the market, and it kind of trails down with uh, Froyo at the very bottom, sitting there with 0.4 percent. Uh, slow yeah. start, Alan. Do you think this is? Well, do you think this is actually a
1: problem? I think it's mostly that, you know, this only can only run on newer devices, right? And if people haven't upgraded their phone, then they're not going to be running the new version. I don't think most people running which one's older, KitKat or Jelly Bean? Uh, Jelly Bean is
0: older than KitKat.
1: Yeah, most people on Jelly Bean devices can't upgrade to the to uh, lollipop, right. And that's why they haven't upgraded. And the other thing is that most people are at the mercy of their carrier to provide the upgrade. Do you think it's a problem, and, though?
0: Yeah. From a security one. standpoint? Yes.
1: Because they don't, they, they don't seem to do long-term support on, on these. But I think the biggest problem is as long as the carriers are allowed to get in there and, and muck about uh, and basically delay me getting updates, it's never going to be secure.
0: So if you are listening to this show and you have Lollipop, you are part of the 0.1% uh, just like Clearwise, Cleverwise is in the chat room. Uh, okay, on our next uh, post comes from Tao Security. What's this one about? The Tao uh, of security. Oh. Uh,
1: yes. Uh, so this is, don't envy the offense. Defenders can be smart too. Uh, so this one is just, a, you know, oftentimes when we're talking about the security stuff, we kind of see that, like Schneider was saying, a, ter- a determined enough attacker can always succeed mm. uh, if they're smarter than the defender. But that doesn't necessarily mean that the defender is always going to lose. Right? Uh, So, uh, Microsoft Security Research was uh, tweeted out at the end of the year, their top 10 things or whatever, and, you know, they say, uh, if you shame attack research, then you misjudge uh, its contribution. You know, offense and defense aren't peers. Defense is offense's child. And, you know, he takes a little bit of an objection with that, but mostly just says, you know, offense and defense inform each other. Uh, But in particular, it seems like Microsoft has a little bit of, the guy who wrote these, has a bit of on uh, your know, offense envy, where it seems like, oh, it'd be much more fun to be the attacker because you always win. Mm. <laughs> but it is true that as the attacker, you have a little more flexibility and freedom and so on. But, mm. uh, you know, he just takes issue with some of the things the guy says, like including at the end here. Uh, the biggest problem with network defense is that defenders think in lists and attackers think in graphs. Uh, and as long as this is true, the attackers win. And what he does he takes, mean by that? Uh, Lists versus Not, graphs thinking? Uh drafts, you know, they kind of fork in you know, like a social graph. Yeah. Yeah. But in particular, gotcha. you know, uh, Richard Belcher, who's guyber, who uh, wrote the article here, is saying oftentimes we've seen, you know, as people are attacking you can clearly tell that they're going through a checklist. Yeah, right. So even attackers can use a checklist. Yeah. And and defenders are perfectly capable of thinking advanced and and going, you know, thinking of it better. Mm-hmm and being smarter than the attacker, (laughs) just you don't hear about it in those cases. right?
0: (laughs) Probably very true, yes.
1: And so on. And he says, you know, on the other end of the spectrum, we all enjoy watching videos of low-skilled intruders fumbling around in uh, kippo honeypots. And he says he's taken to uh, showing these during breaks in his classes (laughs) uh, to amuse everybody.
0: Hey, uh, you know, if I was ever going to build a router, I would have something listening on a network port that always runs with root privileges that you could exploit with just a UDP broadcast. Why not, right? Uh,
1: yeah, but now, How long? Have we covered an attack like this a while ago. I forget what brands of router. I don't know if it was ASUS or somebody it else. It was so long ago, we both forget. <clears throat> but there were one where, but in that one, there were only like six commands you could do. Mm. In this one, you can provide any command you want oh. in the UDP pack. Oh. So it's even more. And, and the code's and the up on GitHub. Has, <laughs> yes. Uh, the code for the attack is up on GitHub, and it has the best CVE number ever. It was CVE 2014 10,000. Yeah. It is over 9,000. <laughs> uh, it, it was funny because on uh, CVE's website, they were actually talking about, get ready, you know, uh, 2014, we've made the change. It's possible we're going to have over uh, 10,000 bugs this year. So that means the digit could go from four to five. So if you have any uh, hard-coded limits or whatever in your software, make sure they understand that the numbers are going to go to five digits this year. And they did. <laughs>
0: So there you go. Yeah, uh, so there. this
1: has everything you need to know to uh, look at the vulnerability on the Asus brand uh, certain routers and see that uh, by sending certain UDP packets you can cause whatever you want to happen on there. And uh, it seems that means that if you just can associate with the Wi-Fi, even if you're, you know, driving down the street around the person's house, that you might be able to take over their router and uh, you know make it do man-in-the-middle attacks on them or whatever you want once you have control. Yeah, change their,
0: their DNS. Why not? Uh, Alan, I've been waiting all episode for you to tell me what the heck Rotten, or sorry, I think it's Rocket Kitten. What is this? Rocket yeah, Rocket uh, Kitten. What is so, it, Alan?
1: Uh, there was this new, uh, someone found uh, what looked like an APT attack using this, and they dubbed it Rocket Kitten, and talking about how the attackers <laughs> must be like so awesome to be able to pull this off because they have really good custom malware or whatever. And then uh, research shows maybe not quite so much. And the question at the end was, is it still an advanced persistent threat if the attacker just bought the malware off the shelf? It's going to happen a lot. It's going to happen yeah. a lot. So uh, the new attack uses expensive, but easily obtained pen testing software in the attack. So they basically install this to allow them to you know, remote control the uh, infected machine and so on. Uh, and... Say that stuff like this might result in analysts incorrectly attributing the attacks to nation states or other highly capable attackers, when all they did was buy the malware from the highly capable attacker. Right? Yeah, you know, we've seen plenty of people, especially in like the the Eastern European criminal underground. It's like, why would I risk, uh, you know, getting caught or arrested or whatever? Uh, by doing these attacks myself, when I could just write really good malware and sell it for thousands of dollars a day with you know mm-hmm. DRM and, and so on in it yeah. so that the attackers have to keep paying me. Sit back and collect the Bitcoin. And don't have to do any of the work. Yeah. Exactly. Or the doge. Uh, and so because of that, uh, you know, we've seen a bunch of things where it's like, oh, this stack was so sophisticated, it could only have been an intelligent agency. It's like, yes, but you see, once an intelligent agency uses a virus like this, People might manage to steal copies of it Mm -hmm. and reverse engineer it or make it work for them instead. So just because it's really high-end malware doesn't necessarily mean the attacker is that capable. It just means they got a hold of that highly capable malware. Yeah.
0: All right, our next story comes in from Wired about a cyber attack that's been confirmed to have caused... Physical damage, for what Wired says, is the second time ever actually confirmed causing physical damage. It comes from a German report released just before Christmas, they have a PDF linked, that hackers had struck an unnamed steel mill in Germany. They did so by manipulating and disrupting control systems to such a degree that the blast furnace could not properly shut down, resulting in a massive, though unspecified, damage. This is only the second confirmed case in which a wholly digital attack caused physical destruction of equipment. The first case was, you guessed it, Stuxnet, a sophisticated digital weapon from the U.S. and Israel that launched against control systems in Iran in late 27 or 28 to sabotage the centrifuges at uranium enrichment plants. So uh, there you go. Potentially a steel mill, Alan. Well, uh, they needed better security on their SCADA systems. Uh.
2: All
0: right. So uh, the next one comes in. uh, When security... Goes right.
1: Yes, this is from uh, the blog of uh, Colin Percival, the former previous security officer, and he talks about uh, when it had gone right. Um, And in particular, so it was, uh, he got a new ISP because uh, one of the, Shaw, one of the big uh, ISPs here started being evil. They Mm. uh, jacked up their prices and jacked down their bandwidth. Uh, Super frustrating. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, It's like, so I can't even have what I have before. For oh, the same money? I like, just, that would slowly? dry, that would infuriate me so bad. Exactly. Um, and so he went with this smaller uh, local place oh, that nice. does uh, like his condo and so on. Okay. And um, he found a security problem on their web portal oh. where uh, you can log in and get a bandwidth graph of your usage. And uh, he found that by playing with the URL a bit and, and, and fiddling around just out of curiosity, that he could see other people's uh, bandwidth graphs. Uh, not a huge deal, but not great. Not a, yeah. And so uh, he was trying to find a way to to contact the right person there. So rather than, you know, if you call the support line, he wasn't going to get someone that knew about, you know... Modems and resetting them and... Well, yeah, not somebody that's going to know about the back end of their web portal. Uh, And so he tried the person listed on the Whois records for the domain and managed to get in touch with the right person and get the problem fixed and discuss it with them and so on. Very nice. Uh, But it kind of raises the question, should companies... uh, have some kind of security officer type contact uh, that's easily, easy to find so that when you find a problem like this, you can actually report it to them. Because remember, uh, back when the PlayStation Network got hacked years ago, there were uh, some security researchers who had found, remember they found that, you know, they're running like three-year out-of-date Apache mm-hmm. or whatever with known vulnerabilities, but they couldn't find a way to tell Sony about it, right? Because Sony doesn't really have uh, contact us on our website that's going to get to someone technical that's going to deal with that kind of a thing. And so it seemed like you know there needs to be some way to get in touch with security type officers at, at these companies to tell them when you find a problem like this. And it seems like every company that has a large technical footprint like that should maybe have that kind of contact information somewhere.
0: Yeah, and if not, at least have like a, a representative that co- yeah, it coordinates, but really right, something so, online. Yeah, that, uh, you
1: know, the, the address that goes to could be a secretary that reads out the spam to yeah. not waste the time, but yeah. eventually that has to be actually get to someone that right. can diagnose the tactical. Totally so that when you, when you want to report a flaw in somebody's product, it goes actually somewhere. a person you can reach yeah. out to.
0: Yeah, somebody's going to look into it.
1: Yeah. Uh, and <laughs> it's ideally in their best interest. That, that needs to be done like really properly, like Here's an email address, and here's a PGP key. Please encrypt the email when you send it to us, and so on. Like when I uh, contacted PayPal about a bug, it's like, yeah, you go here, and uh, you send us a PGP encrypted email. uh, Here's our key. You do this. And then they actually send you back uh, an account creation thing for their fancy secure portal, which then all the email happens over like webmail. It's not great, but it saves them having to deal with story, uh, making sure they have your PGP key and you can decrypt it and so mm-hmm. on. But hmm. um, in general, you just, you know, having the procedures in place to deal with that. Uh, or at least just having someone that can read the emails and uh, make sure that the right person eventually sees them. Some it. action is taken. Yeah. Speaking of bad ISPs, though, uh,
0: Comcast lobbyists are handing out VIP cards where you can skip the customer service wait line. How frustrating is
1: that? Yeah, so you it's, know, in, if you're in some club. position of power where you can uh, have any sway over Comcast, then they're very happy to support you and 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 give you everything you There's need. Here's the fast lane to get customer service. Exactly.
0: Not too surprised. There's probably a lot of companies that do that, Alan.
1: Yeah, it's like and 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 Comcast tries to claim they're not so big that they're everywhere, but they're big enough that they, you know.
0: Well, and if, they have, if, the, if they're doing it for the lobbyists, if the lobbyists are doing it, then obviously then th- the representatives are getting a distorted picture of what customer service is actually like.
1: Yes, but uh, also it, it just means that Comcast is big enough that most of these uh, uh, places have... Um, Comcast's footprint is big enough that most, lobby, uh, most people the lobbyists are talking to are going to end up having Comcast at home.
0: Mm-hmm. Yep. Hey, Alan. NTP demon vulnerabilities are best kind of vulnerabilities... Yeah, <laughs> they go uh, all so they don't stop the
1: the one the reflection attack one we saw last year with the um, responsible for some of those really big denial service attacks. Yeah, uh, this one could allow remote code execution. Oh, and there was also the ones where the uh, cryptography used in it, if you were using the crypto parts of it, was done very very poorly. Oh. And so all that's fixed. Uh, but make sure you update your NTPD. There
0: you go. Watch out for a package coming to a machine near you soon.
1: Yeah, so the NTP, the package, you should have already installed that. We're kind of late telling you because it's been a while since text now. But make sure you get the OpenSSL fix as well. Uh, and then speaking of that, mm-hmm. uh, Apple used yeah. their automated OSX update system for the first time ever to force the NTP update on everyone.
0: During the break, yeah. During our yep. break, they just pushed out the update.
1: Yeah, so unlike the regular update system where you can choose to install the updates, this one just silently installs for you. Since I'm guessing most Mac users wouldn't know what NTP is.
0: Well, and I guess Apple must have assessed, you know, it's
1: low enough impact, it's of critical enough importance. I
0: didn't yeah. actually know they had the ability to do that. I mean, yeah. I guess it makes sense. They've had them it
1: uh, since the beginning of the current generation of the OS, that makes whatever sense. it's called.
0: Yeah, uh, uh, Yosemite. Yeah. Right, yes. But this
1: is the first time they've ever used it.
0: Yeah. Uh, oh, boy, Staples. Oh, boy. Why you got? Why has it got to keep happening to places that my wife and I shop at? Uh, well,
1: in this particular, uh, so Staples... Uh, disclosed a breach uh, that affected up to 100 stores and 1.16 million credit cards. Yeah, in December. Uh, But it originally, the breach happened in October. So it happened around the same time, I think, as the uh, Home Depot one or whatever. Okay. Uh, And that kind of goes back to Bruce's points: is Mm -hmm. they weren't after Home Depot specifically. They were after everybody. Uh, And Staples just uh, didn't give out the full details until now. Gotcha. They were doing their investigation. Good
0: catch, Alan. Good catch. Okay. Uh, All all right. If you want to read more about it, I have a link. So... Uh, this is pretty what cool. Samsung has some pretty neat hardware they're showing off at CES. Uh, and I don't know if this came out of CES or not, but Samsung, I've been following a lot of their cool stuff. Uh, and they've announced the production of a new type of uh, mobile
2: drive?
1: I know. Uh, mobile RAM. So it's uh, oh. low power DDR4. So it's 20 nanometer, very small. Uh, but basically it'll be faster than desktop DDR4 RAM and use less than half the electricity of... Uh, uh, low power DDR3, which will mean much longer battery life in your mobile devices. Cool. Yeah, I've been following all their storage stuff. I didn't see any of their RAM stuff. This is yeah, great. Yeah, so this is a uh, faster and less, less power-hungry power. RAM uh, for tablets and phones and everything mobile, everything that runs off the battery. Basically. I
0: had heard that one of the reasons Apple keeps the memory kind of lower than the rest of the industry in the iPhone is because of the battery usage the RAM takes. I didn't realize... Yeah, because
1: uh, the, the power you draw is per uh, like megabyte of memory. And uh, specifically, this one will be less. And so, yes, there is an advantage to having less RAM in a phone. You get better battery life. The disadvantage is it sucks. Yeah. Yeah. I have, uh, you know, pondered a few times: as well, Why does nobody just make a phone with like eight gigs of RAM and it stop running out of RAM?
0: I think uh, Asus just announced a four gigabyte model at CES. Yeah. I guess part I of it's because it's on Android, a lot of them are thirty-two bit processors right now. They're going to they're transitioning oh, to sixty-four bit, right? Which is ironic. iPhone was
1: first to go 64-bit and it has like 2 gigs of RAM or whatever it is. It's like, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, that, at that point, with 64-bit and small amounts of RAM, sometimes it's actually less efficient yeah. because each pointer is twice as long now, so it I takes guess, up more RAM to allocate the RAM.
0: I guess there was something with like the ARM instruction set that when they switched to something new, they got 64-bit along with it. or I don't know. Right, right. I don't yeah. follow.
1: You get to think faster video decoding and lots of interesting stuff. Sounds fancy to me. Uh, All right. So
0: if you'd like to participate in our roundup, go over to techsnap.reddit.com and submit a story and vote stories up or give comments, and you'll see them show up in here. Alan, is there anything else we need to cover today? Uh, No. Okay. Well, I'll just leave you with a little bit of wisdom. Join us live, won't you? We do this show Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific, which is? 4 p.m. Eastern, uh, 2100 UTC. Over at JBLive.tv for the video and jblive.info for the audio, which is also great. Like if you're on the road or you're sitting at work or something, you just want an audio stream. Maybe you've got a, an amazing theater in your mind. And you want to mm-hmm. you want to project the tech snap show on your brilliant canna, can not cannabis, but canvas. <laughs> canvas. And you want to maybe have a little cannabis and you don't want to have any video going because of lights in your eyes. Audio feed, jblive.info. Also don't forget we need your bad. stories about episode 200. And uh, you can send those in just to the regular contact spot, and we'll sort f- through them. Just don't forget in the subject line, please put episode 200 so we can do like filters and searches and that kind of stuff. Makes it a lot easier. Okay, we're all done. Thanks so much for tuning this week's episode of Tech Snap. We'll see you right back here next week.